John chapter 2, verse 13, the Bible says, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away, and do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said, It has taken forty-six years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. The Apostle John has written this gospel to fully explain and demonstrate who Jesus Christ is. Who is Jesus? Who is he? He is the only begotten Son of God. He is the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us, who redeemed us through his death on the cross and gave us eternal life through his resurrection. He is our Lord. He is our Savior. He is our Redeemer. He is our Deliverer. That's who Jesus is. And John is wanting to set it straight. He wants to put an end to the religious debates, to the theories, to the ideas, and he wants us to know exactly who Jesus is, what Jesus did, and why this is important. This is personal to John. In this passage, Jesus confronts the vendors and the money changers in the temple. Now, to set the setting for this, we have to remember that it's Passover. It's Passover. This is the celebration of God leading his people out of Egypt. It is a celebration of God sparing the firstborn of his people, the ones who had painted the blood on the doorpost of their homes in celebration and observance of Passover. We are at the temple. The temple is a special place. The temple is not just a church building, but it is the place where people would come to worship to be reconciled to God. You can pray to God anywhere. You can hear the word taught anywhere. You can teach the word anywhere. But in, the, in this particular time in history, if you had a special way of wanting to come to reconcile to God, to seek his will, to lift up a very special prayer request to God, to meet God, if you will, you came to the temple. The temple was the place where you came to meet God. Its predecessor, the tabernacle, that word tabernacle translates into tent of meeting. You were to come to the temple to worship, to be reconciled to God. But worship at the temple in this day and time is being hindered. Because you have to go through a lot of malarkey to get there. Have you ever wanted to go someplace, but you knew the traffic was going to be heavy? You knew that the crowds were going to be thick? You knew that it was going to be hot? And all of that all put together, you're thinking, nah, maybe not. Maybe I won't go today. Have you ever felt like that? That's, that's what the temple had become. Because it had gotten to the point that you couldn't just go to the temple. When you went to the temple, you had street vendors who were harassing you in the temple. 
don't y'all just love it when that happens? You ever, you ever go to the mall and the guy at the kiosk says, would you like to try a teeth whitening strip today? It's like, no, man, I don't want to try a teeth whitening strip today. I want to go to Books a Million and, and check out a book. And you go about 10 feet further, would you like to look at our new cell phone today? No, I don't want to look at your cell phone today. I want to go to Books a Million and buy a new book. Have you ever had that issue? You ever, you ever deal with that? When I, we were at Brownwood Reunion, um, and all those booths set up, all those vendors, people would literally walk down the street with their hands to their heads like this, just like, don't make eye contact with anybody, don't make eye contact with anybody, because if you make eye contact, they're going to give you a sales pitch. And this is going on in the temple. They're trying to sell lambs, they're trying to sell oxes, they're trying to exchange money and, and, and exchange currency. And so just going to, to meet with the Lord, to pray to the Lord, had become a hassle. And this angered the Lord. Because the Lord wants people to come worship him. The Lord wants people to reconcile to him. The Lord wants people to seek his will, to seek his face, to seek his direction, to seek his teaching. The Lord wants people to seek his word. And when people put obstacles to that, when people make it hard for people to come, for others to come to the Lord, that angers the Lord. So we look at this passage, and we see that Jesus is upset because these merchants are hindering the worshiper's ability to get to the temple to worship and reconcile to God and to seek him. And so he runs them all out. And from this passage, we see the gospel, we see the authority of Christ, and we see the gospel through the celebration of the Passover that's taking place at the temple. We see the gospel through the sign that Jesus gave. The Jews want to know, what authority do you have? What sign are you going to show us that you have the authority to run out these money changers and these, and these vendors and these merchants? What authority do you have? Jesus gave them a sign, the sign of the resurrection. He said, tear down this temple, I'll raise it up in three days, talking about his body. So we're going to see the gospel through the sign Jesus gave. We're going to see the Lord's desire for worship and redemption. So let's look at the gospel through the celebration at the temple. In verse 13, the Bible says, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In chapter 1, John identified Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In chapter 2, we have Jesus as at the Passover, a feast which featured the sacrifice of lambs as a picture of God's atonement for sin. What they were celebrating at the Passover was not just escaping from Egypt. What they were celebrating at the Passover was not just a celebration of a past miracle that God performed for them. What they were celebrating at the Passover was the fact that God redeemed them as a nation. They had been enslaved in Egypt. The Egyptians were cruel to them. And God had judged Egypt by, by putting plagues on the land the last of which was the killing of all firstborn. And this is all firstborn males. This is all firstborn sheep, all firstborn cattle, all firstborn, period. But there was a way to escape this plague. The way you escaped this plague was you would sacrifice a lamb, had to be a yearling, prime of its life, without spot, without blemish, without any imperfection, you sacrificed this lamb, you took the blood from the lamb, and you painted it on the doorpost. And the promise was to Israel that when the death angel saw the blood, he would pass over that house and not go in. 
not execute the judgment. That's why they call it the Passover. That night, after that plague had hit Egypt, it wasn't that the Israelites were able to escape Egypt. It's that the Egyptians wanted the Israelites gone. The Egyptians set the Israelites free, told them to leave, and God led them out of Egypt through the Red Sea and into the wilderness en route to the Promised Land. This whole thing, this whole story, is a metaphor for redemption. It's a metaphor for what Christ did for us. Egypt, in Scripture, is a metaphor for sin. It symbolizes sin. And what was Egypt to the Israelites? It was bondage. It was slavery. It was destruction. It was death. That's what sin brings. It brings bondage. It does. Drugs bring addiction. Addiction is bondage. Sin is bondage. It brings bondage. It brings death. The lamb symbolizes Christ. The lamb is sacrificed for the sake of delivering those who are in bondage from the bondage and setting them free. Those who believed were spared. Those who painted the blood on the doorpost, who acted out in faith, they were spared this judgment. God led us out of Egypt, spared us and delivered us by the blood of his son and is taking us into his kingdom. The temple was the place of the, of the Passover celebration. That was the place where the entire nation was to come together and they were to celebrate Passover in Jerusalem with the sacrifice of the lambs at the temple. And they're looking forward to the day they get to do that again, by the way. Every year at Passover, they say, we're doing this here this year. Next year, we'll be in Jerusalem. That's what they're looking forward to. The temple was the focal point of the Passover celebration. It was where you got to meet God. Every part of the temple symbolized what it took to reconcile with God. When you went to the temple, the gate to enter into the temple courtyard was a narrow gate. Only one person can go in at a time. That symbolized that we all approach the Lord on our own, not based on the merits of my father, not based on the merits of my nationality. Each man stands before God in judgment alone. Amen. The brazen altar represented the judgment of God. The four horns of the altar represented God's judgment. When you took your sacrificial lamb to the altar, you tied it to the horn of the altar. And when you sacrificed that lamb, the blood was placed on the horn of the altar, symbolizing the blood of the lamb, the blood of Christ, covering God's judgment for our sin. Amen. Beyond the altar, you have this giant bowl of water, the laver, the laver. The, it's, it's the place where the priest would cleanse themselves before entering the holy place. And as we have walked this little trick, up to the temple, everything that we have looked at so far deals with us and who we are to God and what we need from God. Once we enter the holy place, the temple is going to, is going to symbolize who our Lord is. You walk into the holy place, all the elements of the temple tell us who the Lord is. You walk inside the door, to your right is the table of showbread, symbolizing Christ being the bread of life. To your left is the lampstand. Looks like a menorah. It's what the menorah was based on. Christ being the light of the world. As you look forward, there is a giant veil, 
a thick curtain separating the holy place from the most holy place. That veil symbolizes the separation of God from man because of man's sin. It is worth noting that when our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ hung on the cross and said, It is finished, that there was an earthquake and that veil was ripped in half. That separation of God and man brought on by man's sin has been ripped in half. It has been opened up. That separation is no longer there because Jesus Christ paid for man's sin on the cross. In front of that veil is the altar of incense. This is a table where incense was burned. If you've ever seen incense burned, whether however you've seen it burned, you can probably remember the smoke patterns that come off of that incense. That represents the lifting up of the prayers of the saints to God. You go inside, you go beyond the veil of the temple, you are now in the most holy place, or the holiest of holies, or the holy of holies, however you want to say it, but you are now in the room where God's presence dwells. And in that room is the Ark of the Covenant. Have you ever seen Raiders of the Lost Ark? The Ark of the Covenant, contrary to the way it was explained in the movie, was not a radio where you could talk to God directly by radio frequency. It was the throne on which God sat. On the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat. God's mercy. Inside the Ark of the Covenant, you had the tablets that Moses wrote the law on, the Ten Commandments. You had a bowl of manna. And you had Aaron's rod that he had turned into the serpent that he had, that he had was able to take up, that had, that had budded. And in that, you see the Lord represented as prophet, priest, and king. The whole thing symbolized who the Lord is, who the Lord is to us. And you see the gospel just in the setting, just in looking at what we do, you see the gospel. In the sacrificial lamb, you see Jesus. In the implements of the temple, you see the story of our redemption. And that's what you see. Jesus is here for Passover. Jesus knows all this. Jesus is all this. Can you imagine how Jesus felt? As he went to Passover, as he saw the temple, as he saw the worship. And can you imagine how Jesus felt as he saw man profaning all that by setting up a market just outside that gate? People getting in the way of others worshiping. Here you are, you've got your family, and y'all are going to Passover, and you're going to sacrifice this lamb. And some salesman stops you along the way and says, that lamb won't do. You have to buy one of my lambs. How much? 500 bucks. You reach into your pocket. You pull out $500. Oh, no, sir, we can't take that money. That's Roman money. That's profanity money. We have to have temple money. That's what's pure. Where do I get temple money? Oh, there's an exchange table over there. Now you get to go wait in line to exchange your temple money. And so... You exchange your $500 in Roman money for $500 in temple money. You get to go wait in line again to buy this man's lamb. That's the game that was being played. And there's a, there's a service charge for the conversion of the money, by the way. They're not just changing that out for free. You see the problem? You see the problem? This angered the Lord. Yes. The Lord pulled out all the stops to bring us to salvation. 
He gave his life. He laid down his life. He humbled himself to purchase our salvation. And what he wants from us is that we know that. We live by that. We praise him for that. And we remember it. Jessica's been teaching a Sunday school series on remembering the Lord. That's what he wants us to remember. He wants us to remember what he's done for us. And when you remember what he's done for you, suddenly you don't find yourself so discouraged by everything that comes up. Yes, we have hard days. Yes, we have bad days. Yes, we lose our cool sometimes. But as in the, in the big picture, we understand that we're blessed. Because the Lord, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, God in flesh, took on flesh and allowed man to kill that flesh so that he could spill his blood, shed his blood to atone for our sins, to cover the judgment of God on our behalf. And when we come together, he wants us to remember that. He wants us to commemorate that. He wants us to worship him for that. That's what the Lord's Supper is all about. The Lord's Supper is remembering how Jesus Christ laid down his life to pay for our sins, to set us free, to redeem us and to welcome us into his kingdom. That's why the Lord's Supper is such an important thing. And he said, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. When he said, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me, he didn't mean do this in remembrance of me. Remember what my smile looked like. Remember what my favorite sport was. Remember some of the neat things I used to say. No, remember that I gave my life for you, that I redeemed you, and that I'm coming again to receive you into my kingdom. Remember that. And when we distract from that, when we create distractions from that, that's what angers the Lord. Amen. There needs to be no distraction. Right. We need to be focused on this. We see the gospel in the sign that Jesus gave. Now you would think that Passover worship would be reverent at the temple. You'd think this would be a time of reverence. You'd think that this would be a time of solemn commemorance. But the journey to the temple was interrupted by noise. Noise of a marketplace as merchants sold lambs and doves for sacrifice. Noise of money changers. Noise of traders trying to make a profit. Y'all ever, ever seen the floor of the New York Stock Exchange? I mean, I don't think anybody in here, I mean, if you've been in here, if you're here and you've been there, that's impressive. But maybe you've seen it in a movie, maybe you've seen it on television. That's a noisy place, isn't it? You have traders trading commodities. It started out, believe it or not, as a livestock exchange. And this angered Jesus. So he drove them out. In, verse, in uh, verse 16, he said, Do not make my father's house a house of trade. In other places, he proclaims that his father's house is to be a house of prayer. What he is telling the people is that the temple is to be the place where you come to pray. The temple is where you go to be in the Lord's presence. This is not the place that you go to buy and sell and to make money. That's what the Lord is saying. And the, the Pharisees, the Jews, the Israelites, they come to Jesus and they question his authority. They say, you need to show us a sign that, you're, that you have the proper position and the proper credentials to drive all these people out. Who do you think you are? And Jesus told them in verses 19 through 21, he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. The sign that Jesus gave was the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of him for their sins according to the scriptures. The sign that Jesus gave to establish his authority, his credibility, his credentials in driving out the money changers and the merchants and the vendors, the authority he gave was the gospel. 
that he, would, that he died for our sins, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. I don't know what else can be done to establish his authority, his credibility, his credentials. That was it, with emphasis on the resurrection. He gave them the sign of the resurrection to prove that he is the Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ proves everything that we believe is true. And you say, well, prove the resurrection. This has been done many times. This has been done many times. The Pharisees knew that the resurrection was coming. So they lobbied Pilate to have the Roman guard placed at the tomb of Jesus to try to discredit any reports of a resurrection. They knew that this was coming. That's why those guards were there. Jesus, the Bible tells us, was seen by multiple witnesses after his resurrection. The Bible says up to 500 brethren at once. Up to 500 at once. And when Paul wrote those words in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, many of those 500 were still living. I know that because Paul said, many of whom are alive today. He appeared to the disciples. He appeared to the apostles. He appeared to the multitudes. Written accounts of this in the Bible. Read the Acts of the Apostles. That's more commonly known as the book of Acts. Mm -hmm. In the book of Acts, you have the written accounts of the resurrected Jesus. But also in the book of Acts, you have 28 chapters of written accounts of his apostles going throughout the world to preach his gospel at the expense of their very lives. Who's going to go out and preach a lie that's going to get them killed? No one. They preached the gospel. They preached the resurrection. Had it not been for the resurrection, they would not have been motivated to get out there. There have been numerous attempts throughout the history of mankind to disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And each and every one of those attempts failed. The case for Christ. Lee Strobel. Some guy wrote a book, big deal, right? Until you know who this dude is. This dude was one of the most skilled investigative journalists of his generation. He could find a crack in the story. He could exploit that story. He brought down major corporations. He crashed Ford Motor Company stock when he showed the safety problems with their vehicles. This was a skilled intellectual dude. He set out to disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's going to put an end to this Christianity scam once and for all. And he travels the country, travels the world, gaining evidence to disprove the resurrection, to disprove that Jesus rose again. And what does he wind up doing? He winds up proving that Jesus did resurrect. He writes a book. The book becomes a movie. The movie becomes a Bible study series. The attempt by one of the brightest, and he becomes a pastor. He's down in the woodlands now, down in the Houston area now, preaching the gospel down there. He's, he's a seminary professor. Sets out to disprove the gospel. He was an atheist at the time. Sets out to disprove the gospel. Winds up proving it. The sign that Jesus gave that he had the authority to do those things 
was that he would rise again the third day. And you know what he did? He rose again the third day. Amen. It may have been a posthumous validation, although he's not really dead, but it validated him nonetheless. There are so many religions in the world today, so many religious ideas, so many religious concepts. Ours is the only one with a Savior that has been resurrected. That's right. That still lives, that ever lives, the Bible says, to make intercession for us. We see the gospel revealed in the sign that Jesus gave. And then we see the Lord's desire for worship. The purpose of the Passover was for the people to remember that their redemption and worship, and they were to remember their redemption and they were to worship God. The purpose of Passover had been forgotten. How many times do we do something in church or do we have a religious holiday and we forget the purpose of it? How many times do we come to church and we sing the hymns and we forget why we're singing? We're not singing because we like this song. Okay, this is not our jam. It may be your jam, but you're not singing it in worship because it is your jam. We sing because we are praising God through song. Amen. Why do we observe the Lord's Supper? To remember his death for our sins and to remember that we have been redeemed by his work on the cross. Yes. Why do we have the responsive readings? We have the responsive readings to realign our focus into his word and into his scripture. Why do I preach for 35 minutes every Sunday? I preach for 35 minutes every Sunday to do two things. To one, deepen your faith in the Lord by giving you the scriptures and teaching you the scriptures. And two, to honor him by proclaiming his word and what he wants. Amen. That's why we do what we do. In place of worship, in place of where they should have been commemorating their deliverance from Egypt and their deliverance from sin, you have a marketplace. So Jesus drove them out. The purpose of worship today is to remember our Savior, to remember our redemption, and to praise God for it. Amen. Do we remember this, or do we allow ourselves to be distracted? Churches are sitting empty this morning. They are. Why? Why are the churches empty this morning? Because we're all distracted. There's football. There's softball. There's work. There's getting to the lake before the crowds get there. There's getting to the restaurant before the Christians show up after church. There's sleep. There's television. There's weekend road trips. But you know, the distraction doesn't just happen on Sunday morning. The distraction happens throughout the week. Because if we were gospel-centered and we were focused on the Lord all week, we wouldn't allow a football game to distract us on Sunday morning. I mean, if your daughter was getting married on Sunday morning, would you miss that to watch a football game? No, because that's what you've been thinking about all week long, isn't it? Everything has been building to your daughter's marriage. So when that wedding ceremony happens, you're showing up for that. Sorry couldn't make it to your wedding, daughter. <laughs> but the Cowboys were, it was the divisional final. Now you, you, you will, I'm sure somebody's had that conversation because everything that you can imagine has probably happened. But generally that's not what happens, is it? No, that's what we've been thinking about all week. And when you think about the football game all week, that's where you're showing up. And I love football. I love sports. Y'all know this about me. I love movies. I like television. 
I watched three movies yesterday on Netflix, okay? I'm into movies. But when we allow ourselves to be distracted throughout the week to where we're never thinking about the Lord, we're never thinking about His grace, we're never thinking about His redemption, then being distracted on Sunday morning, that's not a big deal. That's not a big deal. And this, this pleases God. He wants us to wake up in the morning and think about him. Amen. He wants us to build our day around glorifying him. He wants us to remember how he's redeemed us, to think about how he has blessed us, to be mindful of his grace, to be mindful of his greatness. He wants us doing this. This doesn't mean that all you can do is quote scripture all day. What this means is he is in your thoughts all day. And you see everything with his context provided to it. And he wants you to remember your salvation, remember your redemption, and he wants you to worship him for it. And do we do that? And do we do that? Let's stand.